For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? If you have a Bible with you, you can turn in it to uh, the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 4 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, as always, it's in your order of worship. Just look there. Or if you don't own a Bible, there's uh, about three on the back table. Go grab one of those. We have more in case for some reason they should run out. So grab one. That's, that's our gift to you. Take that home with you. Uh, you need to have one. Either way, any way you can have it in front of you, as I say often, it's good to have it in front of you so you know that I'm not just making this stuff up. If I were, that would be wasting all of our times. Okay? Um, this is our last week of Advent. I've mentioned that already. Thursday is the blessed event, right? That, the, the great celebration of Christmas. Next week begins the season of Christmas. I don't know if you knew that. Protestants generally are not very good with understanding how that works. The season of Christmas actually doesn't start until after Christmas, and before that is the season of Advent. So the season of Christmas is the time when we celebrate the fact that Jesus has come, that God has come to dwell with us. We're not longing anymore. We're living into the reality of it. Um, But this week, one last time, we intentionally look at Jesus coming as the incomparable Christ. This whole season is about God, the Son, coming in the flesh. Often, though, we can get so caught up in the how of that event, especially because we're Westerners and we don't do weird math problems well. So we're like, how does God become human and stay God, but also stay human? Uh, so we, we get caught up in the, in the how of that or even the what, like the actual events surrounding it. And we can do that so much that we forget the why. There are many reasons that Jesus came. We've been thinking about some of those the last four weeks. This morning, though, we look to one that's not often thought through. We look, as the writer of Hebrews helps us do, to see that God took on humanity so that he might be incomparably compassionate. If you have your place in chapter 4 of Hebrews, let's stand in honor of God's word. That's our habit here. We're going to be reading verses 14 to 16. It's three verses. This is God's word to us this morning, friends. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time we ask your blessing because we are a people who are um, slow to hear. We're quick to talk. We're quick to fill in the gaps. We're quick to think our thoughts after ourselves. But we need to think your thoughts after you this morning. And so we ask that you would, by your spirit, come soften our hearts, open our ears, uh, open our eyes even, that we might see you. We might see the glory of our Savior and rejoice in it. Lord, if you don't speak, we're lost. And so, Jesus, would you let what you have done and who you are come to the fore and let the one who speaks fall to the wayside. You alone hold the words of eternal life. And so speak, for your servants are listening. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Have a seat. This is, uh, for me at least, and I hope by the end of this time at least maybe it'll be for you as well. This is a powerful passage. Um, uh, in September at our, at our regional Presbytery meeting, and for you, those of you who are new to Presbyterianism, uh, Presbytery is a collection of churches in our denomination in a region. So our Presbytery is from uh, Winchester all the way down to Martinsville. Um, at a Presbytery meeting, I heard this passage read and a, and a brief meditation given on it by um, Clint Ilderton, who's a... Uh, He's the pastor at uh, the PCA church in Winchester, Eagle Heights. Um, and honestly, this passage slowly sang, began to sink into my soul. I'd, I'd heard it a million times. Probably if you've here and you've been in the church for a while, you've probably read it a bunch. Like, you've heard it too. Um, but it, it, it suddenly, it, it, something about it began to disrupt me. And I couldn't get the text out of my head for several weeks. What is so disruptive, for me at least, about this passage is something that should be incredibly... Um, comforting. That Jesus came so that he could relate. What do you think about that? Jesus came so that he could relate, that he could understand, like you and I, what our life is. If you're anything like me, the idea that Jesus came to save is very comfortable. Uh, The the idea that Jesus um, came to teach even more so, because that's an extra level of distance. The idea that Jesus came to be able to get into our shoes, be able to step into our experience to understand what is, things are like for us. That's a little more difficult. But this text this morning is unavoidable for us. Uh, it, it hits us right there. And so this morning we're going to look at this in two ways. There's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful to you. If not, leave it. We're going to look at two things. We're, first, we're going to look at a terrifying proposition. And then secondly, a compassionate presence. Okay? Now, I want to begin with this terrifying proposition, which probably sounds strange, right? I mean, how could, how could anything about this passage be terrifying? It seems like the whole thing's one big comfort. Well, it's because we've read it, to some extent, out of its context, okay? The, the context is a little different. You see, chapter 4 of Hebrews is a warning. It's a warning. The entire book of Hebrews is written to a congregation. It's probably preached, honestly. But it was, it, it, at the very least, it was read to a congregation that was tempted to leave Jesus behind. And the reason is because their experience of life wasn't any different than ours. They heard about all the promises that that come with the coming of Messiah. Forgiveness of sins, changed heart, changed life, all this great stuff. And added to that some of the things that we don't often think about. Not just people made new, but a world made new. A society transformed. Things changed. And they looked around and things didn't seem like it was happening. Right? Right? And you know this because if, if you've been a Christian any amount of time, you know you've gone through periods where you're like, if I know Jesus, if he's transformed my heart, why am I still in this mess? And then there's the just circumstantial things. Like, if God loved me, why would I be going through this? And so these, these Christians were tempted to abandon Jesus because of the fear that he wasn't really who he said he was. They really couldn't deliver on the promises that he made and he wasn't enough for them. And so chapter 4 is a warning not to turn away from Jesus because he is, in fact, God's only answer to our sin. And then in verse 12, which is two verses before where we started reading, uh, the writer begins to talk about God's word. Okay, And again, if you've been a Christian a while, you probably know these verses, that God's word is living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, divides between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, which, which to them was like the same thing. It's able to, to cut those things which can't be divided. It's able to get to the heart of things, which, which means that it, 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 God's word can actually expose us down to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And then from there it says, 
Not just that it can do that, it finishes with this notion that God, whose word does that, sees everything. And it's before him that we're accountable. This is the context of this passage. The truth that God sees everything. That by his word he cuts us to the core, down to our inner heart motivations. Those things that we want no one else to see those moments that we thought we hid from everyone else in the, either the physical dark or the, or the metaphorical dark where no, one, no prying eyes were present. And that God actually sees those things and then holds us to account for them. And to this, our writer says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, we're going to get into what a high priest is and all that jazz in a minute, but I want to continue pushing on what these words up to this point are trying to do for us and, in fact, trying to do to us. So think with me here. Let's pretend something for a minute. I know this is so far out of all of our experiences, but let's, let's pretend for something, uh, something for a minute. Let's pretend that you are a Christian with doubts. I know it's a stretch. No one in here would ever have any doubts, right? You're a Christian with doubts. Doubts or, or even fears that Jesus isn't enough. Or, let's just pretend you're ever just plain committed to the notion that Jesus can't fulfill your hopes. That whatever hopes you have out there, that he, he really can't fill them. Let's just pretend for a second that that's part of your existence. So we're Christians with doubts, and we've just been told that God sees all of them. We just, we're, we're Christians with fears that Jesus can't fulfill our hopes, and so we're running off into places to see them filled, and we're just told that God actually sees those things, knows why we do them, sees the dark parts of our hearts that we don't like and that we, that we may not even see, that he sees them, and in fact, he's going to hold us accountable to them. And then we're told of a high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a superhero to me. Right? Like, he's flying through the heavens. He's the Son of God. Uh, And you and I, frankly, we don't go through the heavens. That's some kind of cosmic figure. And so whoever this dude is, what, what so far we're being told is, this guy's not like me. The Word of God cuts me to the core and sees the inner thoughts and motives of my heart. This dude, he soars through the heavens and is the Son of God. So whatever problems I have, he's not like me. I'm weak. I have secrets. I have things I don't want you to know about. I have fears that I hope no one ever hears about. But that dude, so far, he he goes to the heavens. He's described as the Son of God. And so that we get the full impact of this middle section, I want to skip skip down to the last verse really quick in verse 16. Look at the bold approach. In light of this context and this great high priest, this in the original is the mega high priest. He's the mega, okay? He's the great high priest. He tells us that we are to boldly or with confidence, depending on your translation, draw near the throne, okay? That word for for confidence or boldly is consistently used in places where we are to do something in light of the promises made in God's word. In, in full confidence of what God has said, we are to approach the throne. That sounds great, but remember the context. Who is it that sits on that throne? It's God, right? Who is it that we've just been told can see to the core of who we are and knows all the junk and is going to hold us accountable? God, the dude on the throne. So he's telling us to confidently approach the one who sees us. Draw near to the one who holds us accountable, the one whose word can cut us 
and reveal our innermost motivations. I don't know about you. That doesn't sound real comfortable to me. Now, some of you right now are probably thinking, this is one of the problems you have with Christians, right? That overactive conscience thing. But think with me. I know some of us in this room don't feel guilty. We probably never feel guilty. Like, I don't often feel guilty. I feel it at times, but it's not all the time, okay? Uh, But none of us want our inner life looked at. You know what I mean? Someone could plug a little thing up to the back of your brain stem and start projecting it. How many of you would stay in the room? Right? None of us want our inner life looked at. Those thoughts we had as we walked through these doors and thought about the people we saw, the objectification that we do with members of the opposite sex, the selfishness we hide under a veneer of helpfulness, those attractions that we have that we think those aren't good for Christians should not have such things. The writer is telling us to take all of those things, every bit of them, and bring them to the one who will hold us accountable to all of them. How is it that we can do such a thing? Boldly. With confidence, even. That's the answer that we get in the middle, okay? This high priest is described as a compassionate presence. Look down at verses 14 and 15. Both these verses, Jesus is described as a high priest, right? In verse 14, he's the mega high priest. And then in verse 15, he's, he's the high priest. Now, most of us have probably some sense of what that is, but we're probably all a little off kilter because for many of us, a priest is simply a go-between, right? Uh, especially if you've come from like Roman Catholic backgrounds or maybe Orthodox traditions, um, uh, you know, even some kind of higher Anglican traditions, that's kind of common for you. The priest is someone who's between you and God. Well, that's partly it. But you see in ancient Judaism, which modern Judaism doesn't have this, but in ancient Judaism, a high priest or a priest in general isn't simply a person who gets between you and God. They're a mediator. And by mediator, I mean everything that kind of comes with that phrase. So, so if you, let, let's, say, um, let's say you had a conflict with one of your friends. I'd say neighbors, but most of us don't know our neighbors. Okay? So let's, let's say you had a conflict with one of your friends. And um, it was a bad one. And you wanted to be reconciled with them. You go... <laughs> Believe it or not, you would go to the priest. Fully desires to be reconciled. You'd go through some ritual stuff, and then finally the priest would sit down with the two of you over a meal, and you'd eat a meal together. Reconciled. Reconciled. In Judaism, in the Old Testament, a priest stands between two parties, the offender and the offended. He holds out his hands to both, and he brings them together. That's what the priest does, whether that's between You and your friend, or us and the Lord. That's what the priest does. And so to say that Jesus is a high priest, or rather the great high priest, is to say that he is the utmost of this. That there is nothing, no 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 finer example of this than Jesus. But this assumes something that many of us don't believe. That there's an issue between us and God, right? That, That we've offended him, that we are an offender and he is the offended one. Some of us here probably believe that God talk of any kind, and certainly um, angry God talk, really is is just an attempt to control, right? Let's be honest, much of our culture believes that Christianity in general is just an attempt to control people. And our best weapon to do that with is this little notion called guilt. Guilt's the easiest way to control people. And so that must be what Christianity is about. I get that. But remember what we pointed out before about those secret things being known, that, that projector screen? You and I, whether or not we feel guilty, no matter what we think about God, we know something is not right, or we would have no problem. What are you, what are you worried about? Sure, look, 
Just plug in. Look whatever you want to see. We know that things aren't right. Most of us are just hoping that we can do enough good things that God's going to overlook the bad ones. Or we've just given up. Because we think if there is a God, we could never make things right between us anyway. We're too far gone. And so we think that the story of the Bible is that God gets wicked mad because we broke his rules. And now he's just waiting for us to try and get things together. To get with the program. But that isn't the story. The story of the Bible is, is that we broke not rules, but a relationship. That, that we, we broke relationship with God. And, and what did he do in light of us breaking relationship with him? Did he unleash his justifiable anger? Did he destroy that, that which he made? No, instead he promised to make things right. We turn from him in a plethora of ways. Some of those public, many of them private. But God determined he wanted to make things right. And so Christians believe that Jesus is God's answer to the promise. That Jesus is God's answer. God coming in the flesh to be our priest. But we're still left with the whole superhero Jesus who goes through the heavens, right? I mean, how approachable is that dude? You and I know what it's like to be around someone who's got their act all together, right? You know what it's like. You're around that, that, that person who who uh, always does everything well. For some of us, that was one of our siblings. Why can't you be more like your brother? For others of us, it was, it was that popular kid in school, or, or it was that dude on the team who makes all the plays and gets all the girls. Is that the person you want to admit that you need help to? The person who seems to do everything well and they just everything comes easily? Probably not, right? You and I have a much easier time admitting our need to someone who can understand and relate. And that is the beauty of verse 15. Look there now. Look at this impossible proposition. The writer says this. We do not have a high priest who is not able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Now stop there. This is so awesome. Look, most of your translations say we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. The reason it's translated, that's not what the original says. The reason it's translated like that is because we need to make it into good English. Because everyone knows you don't use double negatives in English. Right? Nod like this. You remember grammar class. Okay? You remember. We don't use double negatives in English. So they had to take Greek and put it into good English. But the problem is, it's bad Greek too. The writer of the Hebrews, the, the letter to the Hebrews is the most exquisite example. Is probably, honestly, it's one of the only exquisite examples of literary Greek in the, in, the, in the New Testament. There are no other, like all the other books were written by common folks. Whoever wrote this, and God only knows, but whoever wrote this was an artist. Okay? And, and so, why would someone who goes through great artistry and, and amazing literary technique in, in ancient Greek, all of a sudden write a double negative that is just as wrong in Greek as it is in English? Right here. It's because he's trying to get something across. Because you see, when we hear we, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, what we think is we have one who can. He can. That's not what the force of this is. The force of this is not that we have a priest who can sympathize. In the original, our writer could have said we do not have a priest unable to sympathize. That's not what he did. He's not saying that it is possible for Jesus to sympathize with us. The force of the language is that it is impossible for Jesus not to sympathize with us. It's not just that Jesus can relate to where you are. It's that it is impossible for him not to be able to. And I know everyone in this room is coming from different places, right? 
Some of you all have had weeks that have been train wrecks and others of you haven't. And, and what I'm telling you is that Jesus it is impossible, impossible for the resurrected and glorified Son of God to not sympathize with you. That is what this passage tells us. Now some of you are like, how is that possible? He's, he's Jesus, right? He's God in the flesh. I know, but this has been important. This is important. So listen, last week we did it. This week we'll do it after service. We've been confessing together the Nicene Creed. Nicene Creed was written in the 4th century, uh, finalized in the later 4th century, and it was done to, to help the church be able to navigate the tensions of how it is that God could be, or Jesus can be both fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully human at the same time. Which means that Jesus is not Nietzsche's ubermensch. Like, he's not that dude who's kind of hovering and transcendent over all, over all human care, able to conquer and do everything with, without any kind of relation to us. Jesus had to be fully human to be the agent of reconciliation between us and God. And so the writer goes on. He had been tempted in every way like we are, but without sin. Okay? Now, stay with me, because I don't care whether you're a Christian or not. Some of us just refuse to believe this. Because you're, you're thinking like, there, there ain't no way. Jesus does not know what it's like to struggle with internet pornography. Jesus does not know what it's like to struggle with an eating disorder. Jesus does not know what it's like to, to get up every day thinking the world would be better off without you and to look at that weapon or that bottle of pills and think, I could take care of it right now. Listen, what I am not saying and what the Bible is not saying is that Jesus has been tempted with every species of temptation possible. Obviously. We're in the 21st century. He was in the first century. Okay? What I am saying and what the Bible is saying is that the root of all of them, yeah, he's dealt with them. No, he has not been tempted with objectifying and using women or men through internet pornography. But do you honestly believe that right after Al Gore invented the internet, you and I invented how to objectify men and women? No. Okay? No. You are right. It is probable that Jesus was never tempted with the specifics of an eating disorder. But do you think he wasn't tempted to look to his own behaviors to get control when his world felt out of control or when he felt powerless? And I'm pretty sure you cannot read the story of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane without understanding that Jesus knew what it was like to teeter on the edge of despair. The difference between Jesus and us is that his temptations came fully from outside of himself, whereas ours also can come from internal sources. And so what I mean by that is that most of the time, what we want isn't wrong, right? Like, it's not, it's not wrong to want to be desired. We're made to be desired. God desires that we're made for that. It's not, it's not wrong to want our world to be safe and to, to have it be ordered. And, like, God made us not, for that and not chaos. Like, those are good things. The problem is, is where we go to see those things fulfilled. And the other difference between Jesus and us that's brought out in this passage is that he never sinned when he was tempted. Now, when we hear that, he's tempted in every way as we are, but without sin, we focus on the victory. I don't think the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to focus on the victory here. I think he's wanting us to focus on the battle. Again, think with me. You and I, when we're tempted, Christian or not, we normally don't last that long, do we? I mean, we, we teeter. Maybe, maybe uh, we're, we're in the midst of a temptation. We, we uh, get distracted and we move on. And we think back, we're like, oh yeah, that happened. Huh. 
Good thing somebody showed up, or good thing you know I got that phone call, or whatever. Or, or if we don't get distracted and move on, we, we cave. Right? Come on. We cave. But what if you never gave in? What if you never caved? How strong would those temptations be? How difficult would it be to always resist? How much would you actually be aware of and intimately knowledgeable of temptation if you never gave in and felt it every day? Here's why this matters. The writer is saying that this great high priest, this superhero who who went into the heavens can fully relate to you. He can fully relate to you. And he can fully relate to me. That word sympathy that he uses there literally in the original means to suffer with. It means to suffer with. And so the writer is telling us it is impossible that Jesus can't suffer with you. I don't care what you're dealing with today. I don't care your particular point of shame. uh, what, What unbelief you struggle with this morning. It is impossible for Jesus not to sympathize with you. It is impossible for Jesus not to suffer with you. And he can suffer with you because he has suffered for you. And that brings us to finding grace. Look at verse 16. He says this. Therefore, in light of all of these things, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and grace in time of need. This sums it all up. He says, in light of this, come to God. Return to God. You've messed up. You're weak. You're broken. You're self-righteous. You're prideful. You're a train wreck. But Jesus is your high priest and can relate to your weakness. So come. Now listen, this is huge. So I need you, if you haven't been able to, just check back in with me. He says, he says not just to come anywhere. He says to come to the throne of grace. Okay? Now, the throne of grace, the entire book of Hebrews is written to people who are very intimately aware of Old Testament ritual. And probably because they were Jewish and were, were present near the temple. Okay? They knew the way rituals worked. They knew what high priests did. And so when he says, here's this high priest and the throne of grace, he's being very specific. Older commentaries pick up on this. Okay? You see, there was a very important Old Testament image that could have also been called the throne of grace. It was called the mercy seat. In the Old, in the old Testament, okay, one day a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, high priest would come through the temple, and there were various degrees. The, the, the temple in, in Jerusalem was established with various partitions of which greater degrees of holiness, of separateness, of, of God's presence were, were taken as you moved through. So you begin in the court of the Gentiles, which is where most of us, in the, not all of us, but most of us in this room would be. Okay, Gentiles, not Jews, not of Jewish descent. Then you go through there, and then there were a couple of other layers until you finally got through the court of regular worshipers, and then you'd come to the holy place, only if you're a priest. And then as you're going through the holy place, past the holy place is the place that only one priest can go in, only one time a year. It's called the holiest of holies, the holy of holies, most holy place. You get it? Like, this is where God lives. And within that curtain, behind that curtain, was the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, Think Raiders of the Lost Ark. They did a pretty good job of recreating. Okay, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Ark of the Covenant, big box, two poles, uh, cherubim, wing, wings pointing like this. Ark of the Covenant is there. Inside the Ark of the Covenant are the Ten Commandments, the law of God, the, the ideal image of this is what it means to be truly human and the reminder that none of us have measured up, that we all have broken them. 
It's a, it's a reminder of all the ways that humanity has fallen. And that's in the ark. Above the ark is the presence of God. The Shekinah glory cloud of God. And it's, it's, it's standing, it's hovering, really. It's just kind of there. Between the law and the presence of God is the mercy seat. And one time a year, the high priest would come in to the Holy of Holies and bring with him the sacrifice. And between the presence of God and the law of God, he would place on the mercy seat the blood of the Lamb. So that when God looked down at the law and all the ways that you and I have broke it, what he saw between the two was the blood that covered our sins. You and I have earned only judgment by God. And so God the Son came in the flesh to offer himself in our place. He died the death that we deserved. And then he took his very own blood into the, the, the heavenly temple before the throne of grace and laid it out so that when God looks down and sees the brokenness, the, the frailty, the weakness, it is his blood that covers us. Jesus now offers us what we didn't deserve. We call that grace, right? As well as taking what we did deserve. And we call that mercy. His death covers our sin. His work answers for our sins. This is why we are approached to call to, to, called to approach the throne of grace with confidence. It's not because you and I are good folks. God would be lucky to have us. It's because you can approach that throne of grace with confidence because the blood of Jesus has covered it for you. And you come trusting that this is the case. You come because you believe that Jesus is enough. You come before the one who sees you totally, totally, but loves you completely. But here's the kicker. We have to come. You have to come. I know that what you want to do is you want to stand aloof and say, I'll, I'll, get, I'll come when I get myself straight. I'll come when I got this all figured out, but he's not asking you to do that. He's never asked us to do that. And frankly, you can't. Jesus' work is what reconciles you to God. He gets you. Listen to me. He gets you. He understands you. He knows your weakness. He knows it's hard. And he suffers with you because he has suffered for you. And now, he just wants you to draw near. You need to approach the throne of grace to find the mercy and grace you need. And some of you are thinking, Rick, that's risky. Yes, it is. Like approaching someone that you have betrayed, it is very risky. Seeking to be reconciled with someone that you've wronged, yes, that's risky. And that is why he gives you his word, which tells us that he will receive us. That he is enough for us. Come close to him. That's what this season is about. This season is about God coming close to us so that we might once again be close to him. Would you pray with me? Lord, my friends and I here in this place, we... We joked about um, the fact that we want to pretend that we're Christians with doubts. That's, that's a bunk. We don't have to pretend. 
And we're tempted to walk away from Jesus too at times. Some of us, maybe we haven't been there for a while. Some of us are right there. Some of us are clinging, clinging by our fingernails. And Jesus, we need the comfort that you understand. You're not angry at us for that. Your blood has covered us and that you just want us to come. Some of us need to be held by you. Others of us just need the comfort and the reassurance. Some of us just need the smile to know that we can keep going on. But Lord, whatever it is, I pray that your, your Holy Spirit would come and move in us, that by your grace, those of us who have never trusted in Jesus would do so even now, and that those of us who are struggling to keep walking, to keep persevering, that you would work in us, that we would do that. Your word tells us to come. And so, Lord, we come. We pray that you would meet us there with with the, the comfort and the sympathy that you have promised, that you say it is impossible, that you could not give. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.